0: Hello and welcome to Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. In this interview, Laura Evans and Matt Wells talk with Nicholas Alsberg. Laura is an architect here in London with her own practice, Howland Evans, and she's a lecturer here at the Kingston School of Art, while Matt Wells teaches both here and at the ETH Zurich. Nicholas Osberg is a historian and a curator. He is a prolific writer about architecture with many books and articles to his name and has no less an illustrious career as a curator and a maker of exhibitions about architecture, both in his role as the director of the Canadian Centre for Architecture in Montreal, but also with a host of other institutions, including drawing matter here in the UK. In this conversation, Laura, Matt and Nicholas talk about the duties of the architectural curator, about, about the responsibilities to their audience and to the wider discipline, and of that difficult job of keeping the subject vivid, of keeping it living in exhibitions which are necessarily simulacra of the thing being described.
1: So, Nicholas, the first question we always ask is, um, where does it all start for you? Where did your interest in architecture and uh, architectural drawings come from? I've always told people one story which takes back
2: to around the mid-70s, but actually it's very much earlier, I find. um, That I state right away, I am not an architectural historian, I am not an art historian, I am not an architect, I'm a historian, historian nature, some people say. Um, So my inquiry into architecture is almost invariably triggered as a question of material culture and visual culture, and not um, from a formal perspective or from a constructive perspective. So apparently, I used to have to come to London when I was at school in rugby every week, to see a psychiatrist, is I would still need to do that, but I abandoned it. Um, but the school thought this was a necessary step for me. <laughs> it also got me out of prison <laughs> one day a week. Um, and apparently what would happen is there was always an hour or two hours between the closing of my session with the psychiatrist and the train back. Or so I told them. Um And I was talking to an old school friend a couple of years ago, and he said it, i'm so glad we hadn't seen each other or heard from each other since school i'm so glad you, you you've fallen into architecture because I remember you boring me every time you came back to London with tales of Hawksmore churches <laughs> and things like that which you spent two hours doing every week, so I had forgotten that completely, but that was That apparently is where it really began. Um, In terms of architectural drawing, I became archivist of the Commonwealth, it was called, of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I was by then a trained archivist, um, though not in fact a terribly experienced one. And I became the state archivist out of Massachusetts and um, very early on in that career, which started in 1975 um, or 76, um, I got a call from someone in Harvard Square who said, uh, there are lots of boxes, the Architects Collaborative are leaving their office. Um, there's lots of boxes with Walter Gropi's stuff in it, sitting in the rubbish. Um, would you like it? Um, so I said, well I think it's a bigger question. <laughs> what are we going to do about all of this kind of thing? So it started something as a result of that, that stuff was lost, nobody could in fact intervene, because there's no one to talk to, to establish ownership. Um, and what, what was happening was that in, in fact, while Gropius and Breuer's early drawings had gone to Cornell and to the Graduate School of Design at Harvard, representing their early work um, in and just after the war. Um, The great commercial schemes of the Architects Collaborative, which is Gropius' firm of Pan Am Building, all these things that they did with vast amounts of material, um, didn't seem at that point to have warranted preserving by anybody. Um, so, every scrap of Gropius's correspondence was in each of Gropius's archives in the Archives of American Art, but the working drawings and the study drawings and development drawings for major p- projects of the Architects Collaborative, who were at that point a very, very important firm, um, were, were lost. So, with a couple of archival colleagues, and in my position as a rather commanding position, I was a Constitutional officer with a. My office was in the State House. Um, I could come out and I had access to grant money, which is a nice way to bribe people to come on board. Um, we started something called the Committee for the Preservation of Architectural uh, Records. Um, and we did a survey of architectural offices in Massachusetts to see what historical material of value might be had published this. I was working also for Garland Press as a development editor as a sort of offside n- minor job. So I got them to publish the survey. Um, uh, this is an organization that is still in operation and it was basically designed, you made the call, where's this stuff going to go? Among the archivists we identified an appropriate home. So that was it, I didn't really know anything about architecture but I knew that I was interested as someone once said about physiology, I don't know anything about it but I don't know what I like Um, There was, this was an initiative, it was more about preserving what I knew was an important historical record um, than anything else. That that ran on. Um, And then I um, Few years afterwards, 1981 onwards, I was working with the Getty Museum, as it was then, um, to establish a Eimer Manuscripts collection in the history of art. Um, don't think about art, but I know what I like. Um, it's about the similar. So I'm just really just to working archivist. That's my skill. Um, with an interest in the book world and the visual world, driving a lot of my own inquiries. Um, And at that point, um, the library of the museum, um, of which I was an adjunct part, um, had this rather extraordinary situation where because we had inherited... Um, an absolutely inordinate amount of money for Mr. Getty Um, and had to spend some every year to maintain the tax status of a a charitable foundation Um, and because the John Paul Getty Trust was terrified of disturbing the art market by going and buying major pictures um, at that time, um, there was a lot of acquisition money um, that they would love us to spend on books and drawings and archives um, that wouldn't frighten the art world. So I took advantage of, obviously of that situation and um, having originally proposed to them that we start with a major survey of what's involved in the world, uh, around us to record the scholarship in art, which is what my uh, brief was, Um, and uh, I said that's option number one, and you go systematically and so option number two, just start picking up some stuff, was option two. So we started picking up some stuff, um, because they wanted to spend money. Um, This is a little bit out of school, they wouldn't want me to report this as being a history at this point. Um so it came mostly through initially very, very bold initiatives by like librarian Annamika Holbrook, um, to acquire entire libraries, um, including which among which were the De Belder Library, um, a great scholar and collector of neoclassical work in which there were portfolios of drawings. Um, once we'd got some drawings said well we've got a collection so let's start to move a little bit in that direction i didn't know much about architecture and i actually engaged uh another curator to help me with that field didn't develop as much as i hoped because we didn't have very much storage space Um, but that was the next step and then a lot of architectural studies um so i got the Pelsner archive. I got John Summerson's papers. Um, uh, that and Milizia's original manuscripts. Uh, an enormous amount of antiquarian study from the Renaissance through the 18th century that I managed to develop um, through unsold portions of the Sir Thomas Phillips collection, which was going begging at the time. And so forth, together with a lovely little set of l- Lachens drawings, a lovely little group of um, Bauhaus t- teaching materials which impinged upon architecture, including all Kandinsky's manuscripts for his Bauhaus l- lectures, which is still s- sleeping there, no one's p- published them, right? um, by <laughs> Um, so that's where that began, my primary interest was in the correspondence and the writings of artists and that's where I had was developing my knowledge to go along with my archival implementation and then I had tended to defer a little bit on the architectural side but it did, as if you were here yesterday, here. Uh, the scandal of Gunnar Asplund, or the Asplund affair, as it is called in Sweden. We read history books. Um, I did try to get a substantial body of Asplund drawings and some other things, and in that case, I actually failed. Um, so the, 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 that was that. This is a very, very l- l- long answer to your no, question. No, 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 is this perfect. all right?
1: This is almost the answer to, you almost got up, you got up to question two aren't you? Yeah, so I'm uh, probably, probably now to going it. to get to
2: question three. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, well, well, I'm interested, with the Pepsner and with the Summerson collections, which, this was in the early 80s, was it?
2: Yes, m- mid 80s. Mid
1: 80s. Was there interest from British institutions about collecting? Yeah. Because, I mean, I know the Paul Mellon Centre now is very keen to collect historians' archives. Right.
2: No, no, no. I think collecting the history of scholarship Mm. and the history of study and inquiry, I think we were sort of pioneering it. Mm. Um, It's been very, very interesting looking back, and it's not not entirely about architecture, but looking back on that collection as I started to form it, and it was, I mean, it, it was a mug's game. I... I I mean I had money, the stuff was there, it didn't require great skill Mm. to develop what I think was a wonderful collection. I did some things that were a little more elaborate and more time consuming. The autograph market, Mm. relatively active in England, hugely Mm. active in France. Um, there is a sort of culture in France of buying a letter of Jean-Paul Sartre to give to your girlfriend on her birthday that kind of thing right? It's the pretense of a culture of the mind to which the French have been prone Um, so that's that so every three months I was in Paris because there was the trade works on a a quarterly, quarterly cycle. They produce a catalog. They have their sale. So I, I don't know why they didn't figure out that I was always coming in two weeks before they published the catalog, and trying to get everything that I wanted beforehand. But that they couldn't, they couldn't change the rhythm. And that's what it is. So I bought a lot of artist correspondence, artist manuscripts, um, including architects. So I mean, this was. Pretty, ended up being pretty remarkable stuff. Delacroix's proposal for the murals of Hansel Pietz. It was just a scrap of paper, but for that kind of thing, and so architects were among that. And then in England, um, I found that the trade in artists and architects' letters was not so strong, Mm. but that I could go to the autograph dealers, which there are only two or three major ones, and plough through their stock. So I would come here for a month and go and sit in the back room and pick out all the ones that were of interest to me. Again Ford Maddox Brown's proposal for the murals at the Manchester Manchester Town Hall. Not just incidental correspondence, um, Mm. all of the letters of Paul Signac, with Van Rysselberg uh, from Paris, Um, uh, uh, really pretty remarkable stuff, more painting than otherwise. (laughs) Um, And um, so that again was a a trade developed just bringing this up, just introduce one rather interesting and curious thing to me, is among the things I did was in order to get those artist documentation, I acquired a lot of archives of art dealers, Hmm. thinking that it would sleep in the vault forever. By the time I left the Getty, that was still true. But within three or four years of no longer being there, art market was the major subject of nearly every art historian's PhD thesis. (laughs) And this stuff that I thought I was using to get what was incidentally there to record the provenance of works of art and to record the correspondence of artists talking about their work, um, it's now the hottest stuff.
1: I was going to say many of my... Uh, former classmates from the Courtauld that's why they've been to the Getty to go look at particular uh, yeah, Victorian yeah, dealers yeah, unbelievable yeah.
2: so uh, in fact very depressing to me in a way because what is sleeping are the artist's letters mm. which no one's bothering about at all and they're all working on the market That's
1: completely off the subject. But I I wonder whether, we'll keep off the subject for another moment, but I wonder whether this is, if there's a renewed interest in the artist's studio and depictions of it, certainly over the past few years, and I wonder whether then they'll return to the letters. It might return, it might
2: return, because many of these letters were technical. Mm. Um, Some of them are ordering paints. All of that kind of thing. So that might be—it's not where I hope scholarship goes necessarily, but, but but really like people to talk about the ideas and the intention.
0: It's, it's quite a mundane observation, but I've just been thinking as you've been speaking. It strikes me that the profession of the archivist is a very curious one because you know your primary interest is in the past and in yeah. you know what things might have value, um, but there's also this sort of speculative future projection that you do you know part of your imagination is is thinking always what use is this how how is this going to be used by scholarship but of course you never know and these sort of wonderful surprises.
2: I think I want to reflect I think it's right for the archivist to so long as the archivist is thinking broadly Mm. to reflect their own preferences Mm. and Prejudices so I wasn't buying for immediate use mm. Mm. I was buying for what I, what I imagined the the field of intellectual inquiry ought to be anyway um, things changed at the mm. get from those sort of paradise years <laughs> um, I didn't want to stay there anymore and um, I actually asked John Harris, mm-hmm. I knew about the Canadian Centre for Architecture, Does, do you think Phyllis might want me to work for her? And so I did, went to meet her, we fell in love, and um, that was that. So I, was there for, I was there as Head of Collections and then as Chief Curator with Responsibility for Collections and Programs, um, except the scholarly ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually drew Ector in her place. Um, then I was there for 16 years, and that was all architecture. Mm. Um, uh,
1: and, and, how, and how was that task, when you were tasked with just dealing with an architect, or an idea of forming a collection at a museum of architecture, how was that?
2: Well, I'd, I'd sort of been a little frustrated dealing with the whole history of art, thinking that was too narrow for me. Um, so certainly, when it was confined to just architecture, it did seem narrow for quite a long time. But again, I think my perspective on architecture, which is that it's a, it's a primary social act every time a building is made, whether the architect is fully aware of that or not, um, It is man the artificer in the environment, so it's a major environmental intervention every time you build a building, and it's a major statement about not just the mind and the aesthetic of a time, but about its conception of its own social construction and purposes. So I have, I think everything is embraced by architecture in a way that no other field is. And of course, if you get stuck within architecture, you, you can, you can actually see the breadth. That it covers, and I think that's that's a that's a very, very much a driving force behind what I tried to do at CCA. But what I really wanted to do at CCA was to talk to audiences. I mean, my program was propagandistic, fundamentally.
1: Like all good museums, I wanted
2: wanted to seduce people into looking and thinking about buildings and building well. Um, And so, tried very hard to do exhibitions and programs that both would would cross the boundary from the this 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 the scholarly field and the field of the discipline of architecture to the client and the user at the other end. Mm. And the exhibitions that I was the most pleased with were those that the public understood.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask what the architectural culture was like in Canada at the time, Mm. you know, what was the context in which you were operating?
2: Yeah. Narrow. Yeah. Um, I tried quite hard and it it took me a while to recognize that there was a thriving design community in Montreal and that we should be talking to them Mm -hmm. um, and we should be involving them and uh, the first thing I did when I became director was to cancel the exhibition and have the first exhibition under my aegis it's called Laboratoire, um, an invitation to five Montreal architects each to fill a gallery with some s- speculation on what was needed in the world t- t- to come um, it may not have been a great success but then I brought in a lot of international people to have a series of s- seminars with them prior to them producing the work, um, people from Syria and uh, other parts of the world. So that try to build that bridge between Quebec as an oddball mm. <laughs> part of the world and have a bigger reach. It was a little depressing sometimes being in Montreal um, Partly we were seen as a, a very privileged and rather precious institution so the public flowing in through the doors, um, yes for exhibitions, not necessarily for s- discussion and talks. And to put it very bluntly that's also because Phyllis was sitting in the front row saying that was a stupid question if somebody asked the wrong one. Um, so it didn't encourage. Um, I mean, I loved her, and it was a stupid question, (laughs) and she was right, but she couldn't help but say it. (laughs) So things were, it didn't always work in that way. It's very interesting, I invited Will Alsop to talk, because he'd just done the Ontario College of Art and design, which is a wonderful building, and he's uh, he did he he did wonderful things as well as some very bad ones, um, and um, I think I got a hundred and twenty people into the Montreal theatre. I did it again with him as a conversation in Toronto. We got fifteen hundred, hmm. hmm. uh, a massive difference in the cultural landscape, but also just the size. Montreal is a, a city that theoretically is the same size as Toronto, but has no catchment area. It's it, it's a tiny, it's a little metropolitan island and it doesn't draw um, from the kind of population to get elsewhere. So a huge challenge at the CCA and one that it will always have um, is you can't be Canadian, because the Quebec why don't regard themselves as connecting really. Um, you need to connect to your community. It's a tight and a small one, and it's divided into two linguistic linguistic camps. Increasingly that's not so true that it's divided in that way, but the two the two major schools, one's in one language, one's in the other. Um, you get some tourists in the summer, which was our major market for this the, the summer exhibition. Um, you, what, 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 what do you do if you're an international institution with a program of international import in your mind operating from a metropolitan island mm. off the coast of the United States, which is what you are? Uh, so, I mean, I think it's always a major challenge there. I think bringing in scholars in the study centre programme was good and we, when I was there and Phyllis was running it, very much inviting the local community of scholars to come to presentations of visiting visiting research, research scholars in nice I. environment, not really happening that way anymore. Um, so I think it was very interesting, but my 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 primary concern was to try to reach both say something to make architects and scholars think again, um, but also get a a general public interest. And the biggest surprise in terms of success the Disneyland exhibition I did was an enormous success, and not so many people came in Montreal, but when it went on the road it was one of the four leading art exhibitions of the year with the art newspaper, it got something close to a million people in the end. But the Peter Eisenman show we did, Cities of Artificial Excavation, the lines went round the block, because he'd orchestrated such a wonderfully seductive experience within the ex- exhibition. So. People were open to a lot more than you would think. They were disappointed not to learn how to build a building when they came to a show. But once they got over that, it was all right. I'm going on much too long, but you can cut. I have two favorite stories, one's a little heartbreaking and one's really encouraging. I used to go into the galleries and Noble, of me as the head curator. I didn't just direct it so much, but, but able to, and ask people. I, I would sometimes I just go to watch what direction do they go in, what they look at, how long do they stop at this thing, how long do they stay, do they talk to one another? The atmosphere is too hushed in there, so they didn't talk enough. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just didn't feel like it was a place. And I actually had a security guard and said, "I've got some." Sitting on the floor with a sketchpad, drawing something. What, what am I going to do? And he's whispering, and I said, "Tell him to bring his friends." <laughs> That's what museums are for.
1: Yeah, bring him a pencil sharpener. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
2: so it was. I mean, this is a real
1: issue.
2: Uh, trying to get over the hushed, uh, religious environment of the gallery, which is a huge problem, not just for yeah. us, but especially for that. So, I, I, I'm going to change that. And say there, are, there are three good stories. One's from the... Two are from CCA, and one is from that. I used to go into galleries and watch, and I would occasionally, if I felt I, like I wasn't going to be annoying, then go over to people and say, I'm with the CCA, are you enjoying the show, what do you, do you get out of it, and so on and so forth. And Usually, got a reasonably polite response, and it was sometimes it was instructive, and the Carlos Scarpa show, a lot of which was on the Beyond tomb, um, which I thought we did very, very well, and Alba showed a nice picture yesterday. Um, these two, very sophisticated, an uh, 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 New York, tour. I said, well, we, we, we came to the Canadian Centre for Architecture. we'd heard about a wonderful building, lovely place to come to, and we come to a show that doesn't seem to be about architecture, talk it's a sort of poetry of life and death, I didn't understand it. Uh, and um, I was so crushed that having succeeded in communicating that architecture can be a poetry of life and death, <laughs>
1: people thought they'd <laughs> missed the point.
2: So that was rather sad,
1: <laughs> but maybe it's maybe it's good. Like you know, with um, uh, I don't know, with, with medicine, with the law, when people it works and people don't notice. Maybe this is a very positive thing in a way. They sneak it into their life and they don't even notice. Because well, it's so I think, no, I
2: think it's a bigger problem. I think yeah. we've we've sort of told them that architecture is something special that you're not going to understand without learning something, and that it that 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 it isn't a poetic endeavor so the fact is that they they resisted they thought they missed the point when they got it Uh, so that to me it was a very depressing response the best response I had um, we did um, a series of of focus groups with visitors was very very useful in l- learning how to think about doing exhibitions or involving people in programs in the future and one of the people that happened to be selected for focus group and I very grace was very gracious of her to come along was a big businesswoman um, of a major company and um, I said what did you get out of this And she said, well I came because I'd heard about the place, it's on the tourist map, and I came to the Johnstone John, John exhibition, which is the exhibition that was put together by this film during the year they were closed, which I thought the Royal Academy did very badly and I thought we did incredibly beautifully. <laughs> we, got, we got rid of the films and all the, the rubbish and it was fantastic. And she said she came to the St. Tom's Town exhibition. She was totally seduced by it. She'd never been to an architectural exhibition before. And I said, and what did you then get out of it? She said, now I add a day on to every city I visit t- to go look at buildings. Success. Yeah. So that was a huge t- t- triumph. Mm. And that's, you know, maybe she went on to hire good architects mm-hmm. for her, her corporate headquarters, I, I just, that to me that's the trajectory you want, it's a little more incidental because of the sound, she came to Sir John Johnstone's Museum when she was here, she saw Cedric Price's little show that Margaret Richardson had, had curated at the Sound, she said contemporary architects are doing, uh, making very c- curious inquiries, and that, then it, it all spun off from there. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and did you, when you were collecting at the CCA, was there a kind of institutional, um, how was the, was there an institutional policy? Did it change slightly? Did you go after, did you, was it um, seeing or hearing about, on the telephone about the Gropius, you know, Architects cooperative work on the pavement with no one there to collect it? No, what
2: happened at the, Canadian when I got there, um, it was mostly, uh, a library of rare books in architecture, Mm -hmm. rather than the the reference works you would need. Um, It was a collection of architectural drawings, more on the lines of drawing matter here but not so spread so, not thought of so strategically, it had become rather accidental. Um, that was wonderful stuff, um, and then there's a, a brilliant collection of architectural f- photography, still the best in the world, by far, which is underused, um, which had been had been really curated. So the first thing that happened, almost the first thing that happened, as Philip said, John Heder, you know, we've got the i cast a Hanover mask drawings and he said, Need some financial support, would we like to come to buy something else? And I went down to meet John and he came back and said, um, He doesn't have a plan for the archive. Why don't we buy it all? So we did. Um, and did the same as far as I could with Aldo Rossi and I did the same with Peter Eisenman and with Jim Sterling mm-hmm. and so on and so forth, so I, the big step that I took was not in refining the incidental, but in bringing in entire archives, um, which Phyllis had already started doing with the Canadian archives, I think a huge mistake on my part, actually to create that.
1: Why, why do you think that?
2: We were called, of course, it's still my family, um, the Canadian Centre for Architecture, Mm. which was a very strategic move, meant to ensure that in the event of financial collapse or whatever, Canadian government would theoretically feel it had some responsibility. It got us four million a year in a grant, but was helped by the name. not contingent on having it. Um, an enormous amount of cost, infrastructural cost, staff cost, delivery time to users was occupied by having the Russell MacDonald Archive and things like that, and many which had very little even to do with Montreal's architecture, and relieved the The National Archives in Ottawa have a responsibility that they should have had as soon for that was in their brief mm. to collect the, the, the major arch, 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 uh, archives of major architectural firms um, so on the one hand you had this collection of international ideas st- stretching through history mm. and then you had a like a 75 year block of rather conventional archives for relatively ordinary buildings for a large part in, in Quebec and Canada. Two different end users, completely different ways of thinking. And I think this, I mean we'd established it one had to go on with it but I think it might ultimately have been n- not the right the right move if you wanted to pay respect to the community get local designers involved with you don't 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 build a record of Montreal heritage which are, many other institutions could regard as their brief. Hmm. so that yeah. it's something I didn't think about until after I was there
1: and were there any collections or particular, you know, is there, a, is there a drawing that you saw in a sale room or that you saw in an architect's drafting table that you really wanted for oh, the God CCA yes. and you didn't, we weren't able to get? Oh, yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there were too many or? Uh, there was a group, for example, of 110, I think, drawings by Scarpa that were held by Anfadillo, mm. his woodworker, and... Um, they were detailed on so large, part, obviously, but there always are, it's a scar, but there's no difference in scale. Everything is the same, uh, inquiry, and we, we, didn't, we didn't get those, unfortunately. They went to Vienna in, in, in the end. I did a very, very big initiative in Japan with Kazuo Shinohara, Miyiko Maki, Izosaki, Hiroshi and Trado Ando was the other. And it's at some point, it's a different attitude to drawing completely. Shinohara did draw and keep and treasure his drawings. Uh, Mikey thought that was arrogant and egotistical. And no building ever built in Japan was entirely the architect's work, it was always work of a team and and all of this stuff I don't believe it um, but it was the cultural attitude was not necessarily in favour of privileging the drawing in the architect's hand Taddo and quite the reverse Mm, massive ego he would make a drawing that didn't exist once the building was built so that there was one there for someone to to collect but in any ways all of that Happened, and my great, my really strongest association was with, in O'Hara, whom I, I w- w- liked, and we got to be rather good friends, and I w- w- wanted very much to get those drawings, and he was off, so off centre in Japan that nobody else is going to want them, um, and somehow it didn't happen. So that was one of the very big regrets, and think he's still someone who's what we should look back on.
1: So, and there's a new generation of younger architects yeah. of Laura and Isaiah is age beginning to look at Shinhara yeah, and I know and they are, and
2: it's, it's very important yeah. to do so. And I think could be either more radical or more conservative than what he did. It's an incredible combination of the two. So that was, and it was a studio practice, which is what one wants to collect. Yeah really not true for Sterling, but certainly true for Aldo Rossi, whose exe- execution drawings and contractual relationship with construction companies and so on was all handled by an execution firm, not by him. Mm-hmm. Um, so the John Hader, the Aldo Rossi, those are the kinds of archives that I felt we should be making the initiative on Peter Eisenman, yes, and ended up, In the course of our agreement, building some more more, more, more large-scale works, but it was still Peter's office, is still a studio, not much bigger than this, with Mm. everybody in it. Um, So that was the sort of preference I had. Inquiry Mm. practices of inquiring research. It's
1: interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's funny actually. Dividing, you know, there's a, clearly a line st- you know for Sterling and Wilford and that office. It's um, the the inquiry is often the technical or the building itself or the formal problem. Yeah, they're, they're, it, the building is the thing they always want to get to. I think right. It's, it's yeah. All yeah. the work from the office, all the drawings is focused on that.
2: Yeah, no, it's very interesting, and I, 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 I well, no, I think the problem is always the, the same one: who can make the transition from the research and the inquiry studio to the um productive you know do you have an impact on the environment if you if you choose to not do big buildings um maybe the impact is not as good as very very open open moral question for architects and then they want to make so much money that the moral questions don't really come in but interestingly, one of the Canadian archives, Barra, Payne, McKenna, Plomberg, the to Toronto firm that essentially succeeded Barton Myers, um, they we had begun to collect on an annual basis their archives and Phyllis uh, for, for when they were very very small partnership and then they became a huge one with an enormous practice and vast work all over the world. Um, And um, there I was able to go to them and say, let's work on this basis from now on. You identify at the end of each year which of the projects involving new research and new moves um, that you think give a datum line of the trajectory hmm. your family culture in which is operating uh, and could you identify those and let's just archive, the, archive those um, and they Bruce Kuwabara a very reasonable n- n- non-egomaniac mm. man said <laughs> yes that, that's a really good idea let's let's do it
1: it's very interesting I mean this because there is you know, a certain generation of architects working in London where everything in the office is archived um, you know I hear stories of David Chipperfield has a warehouse somewhere oh, or Lord. Richard Rogers because I know Neil Bingham went and Northern Foster, yeah, Foster
2: it's now I mean it's going it's unbelievable Yeah, how much is there but I, I think that this effort to discriminate from your own project list Um, It's a question, it's almost like you're saying, here's here's what you did in the last three years, which do you love? Yeah, you're kind of editing, aren't you? (laughs) Be be your own editor. Poets make anthologies of their work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Selected works, (laughs) I did a book on Arthur Erickson, and with his agreement, addressed only what was called critical works. He'd done a, a lot of stuff, some fantastic, some very good, some mediocre, and um, he had no problem whatsoever saying, okay, as the, as the record, the legacy of what I've done, let's, let's take some critical works. I think the this, this selected works, critical works rather than the oeuvre complète mm. is the way to go. The question comes up with Edric Price whose archives I got mm. the Canadian Centre for Architecture on the basis of a telephone
0: call. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: uh, I mean that was a fantastic move. Um, uh, should, should they have done? I mean, as I was on the advisory committee for that book, should we um, have? Sh- sh- I mean, this is what Alan, uh, yes. my, my dear friend, Alan ran granted a complete works because Corbusier did one, or mm-hmm. not, not necessarily for that reason, but you know, that's, that's the tradition. Mm. Um, I wonder if. A really punchy selected works, critical works,
1: or at least volumes. Kind of you know, sep, you know, like the Zunft four or five kind of critical. You know, it's right. it's a selected, but it's a kind of five or six that get released. I don't know point, how so. many
2: how, how how many volumes we're on of the Herzog <laughs> und uh, of complete, which is produced as they go along. As Corbusier's wants to. Yeah. I, I, but I don't know that I don't know this is what you should do.
1: I I think the funny thing with the of de Muran ones is that they're kind of um, that they started at a certain point. I kind of can't ever work out the dates why they're doing things at certain points Well, they reissued one, two, and three together as a set, which is quite strange because they're also working on El Croquis and you know there's other other greatest hits albums being produced at the same time as well as their own work and then right. the Natural History Exhibition,
0: yeah, Natural yeah, yeah, Exhibition yeah, yeah. Yeah. CCA,
1: yeah, with um, Philip. So it's, they're kind of, they're releasing multiple versions of their poetry all at the same time. It's quite hard to keep a track of it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure why this is, but yeah. yeah. But the, so how did the, you've known, you knew Neil House for a long time and you had a... After the CCA, you hopefully had some time off and then began. No, Neil
2: was. I, knew, I got to know Neil when we were first building the design collection of the Getty, not the architecture. Okay. So the ornamental mm. design, John and so forth. And he was one of the major dealers. In that material at that time, limited. So I got to know him then. He was very young, had just come out of one career in colonial picture trade and another one in Renaissance picture frames, which he continued for quite a long time, in various partnerships. And a typical part of this London dealer network, which is you never knew. And they always knew when I was coming. I think they had. I think I, I, I think the airlines. I think they bribed the airlines to tip them off. Um, so I, I, I never won.
0: Um, so I got to
2: know him very well then, and we became very good friends as well. Um, and he um, introduced him to the Centre for Architecture. We came on. on board as the Board of Trustees for a while, and so on mm. and so forth. So, yeah, we, and we worked together on a number of things. And in uh, around 2005, I think it was, 2006, um, he stopped trading and had some unsold stock, mm. which looked like. And I think the initiative began as let's build a little collection that um, you know, I can present to an international institution. It's useful for estate planning as well as other things. And he just started to have so much fun with it and get so excited and so knowledgeable and thoughtful um, about a field in which his previous optic had been very limited. You know, and I when we started he was working with Ptolemy Dean and not met, I mean perfectly c- competent and intelligent neoclassical pastichist um, and then you know before very long I mean I actually got him involved with Peter Smithson first um, and he had working at Hadsman House, and he'd be the first to say this is this is true. This story, uh, and um, he he said I was visiting, and he said you know I got got to do something with Hadsman House, and so forth. And uh, this is one I'm thinking of. I said Neil, why you do that? Why don't you get somebody who speaks to, speaks to the developing culture, not the retrospective one. Um, you know and I've got to know Peter Smithson from acquiring the drawings for the I uh, your home house uh, house of tomorrow thing um, and I think he'd be really sympathetic to work with and he doesn't have much to do um, and Neil's initial reaction was I can't bring a modern architect to a to a, a seventeenth to early twentieth century. how how, what, how on earth could this work? It's all right. And over the as you know, as the years went by, and this is a couple of years, it's really early on in this process, he called me and said, I think you were right, and I think i have really made a mistake. How do I talk to Peter Smithson? So I called Peter and said, I'd love you to meet this person, Why don't we go down together, and Peter being Peter said, but I have a job right now. So Peter and Alison, we, we, Alison was a little but we, we never talk about the next job, because we finished the last one, not fair on the client. Not a way to develop a prosperous practice. <laughs> <laughs> So it, it had to be a little while till he'd finished a tea room at the, um, the, the, the furniture makers in Eastern Germany. Wasn't it? And then he did come down. And so that got that involved and then introduced Neil to Hedrick. And I mean, within a month, Neil knew every contemporary architect in the UK and have positioned them perfectly and where they uh, knows knows much much more than I do and has has, uh, done an amazing job but he did make quite a big leap at that point from being someone whose I was trained in the French 18th century and the Napoleonic era to look at that kind of stuff to move that far, far that far forward
1: I'm always struck though by how uh, generous and open minded Neil is I mean it is extraordinary how open minded it is and that's, I mean for as a a young scholar that's only been incredibly uh, beneficial to me because it just completely changes the way you think about things which is sometimes provocatively
2: Yeah.
1: but I mean it's it's, I think it's fantastic
2: Um, I mean it's the, the the, the, the knowledge he builds, and he never stops reading and looking, and he never conceals that he sh- has it all.
1: And I, well, I wanted to ask you about two particular things with, okay, uh, with go the dramatic ahead. collection. With, one is the um, well, the first is the, the Theodore Conrad archive, and am, am I right in thinking you went to the, for the to the? Well, it's not an archive.
2: It was just a, bits bits of models. yes. yeah.
1: And 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 you was this in the I'd been for the
2: Canadian Canadian Centre for Architecture to see it. Um, and um, my acquisition committee turned turned had turned had turned down what I proposed then, which was
1: much more because bits have now gone up somewhere else. Yes, yeah. Um, and why was that? They weren't interested in an American model maker or uh, I mean, I know attitudes have changed perhaps to this over the past 10 years, but.
2: I do we had it. I mean, we had the Le Corbusier model by then.
0: Mm.
2: Um, and certainly with the Alder Rossi archive, enormous number of models. Actually, fantastic models. I can't remember what the real objection to. Certainly, some of the buildings were no good. he did the models for. With Neil, um, it's just the first models that Conrad really ever made, Mm. which are paper on wood. So they're drawings as well as models, and they're for the equitable all life, which is a major building and a really interesting one. Majority of the models are not for very significant buildings. There's a good Gordon, and Banicki library, which I'd love Neil to get. Um, there's, um, there were a couple of Lucan models, and Phyllis doesn't like Lucan, so that didn't help the acquisition committee.
1: Yeah. I mean, this was the model which is on a stick. It's on a wooden stick. Yes, so you that's can it. hold it, a viewer can kind of hold it up, right? That's yeah. the
2: equitable, you can see how it's a skyscraper. Yeah. No, it's wonderful. Yeah.
1: No, no. It, yeah, it's a. Uh, I'd love No, they're
2: fantastic, the and I mean, Conrad was just a, a, a student, actually, at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you, you've you got somebody at ETH who's doing a PhD uh,
1: yeah, on twi- the
2: Conrad archive, I.
1: At the university, Teresa Fankanal, she's, yeah, she's yes, finished right. and now she's at, the Deutsche, uh, she's at the architecture museum in Team Munich, but um, it's all now at the Avery, um, a lot of the material has been taken to Columbia and it's... Good. Of I'm, it. and gl- it, I'm glad it has a home yeah. and Avery is
2: the right place for it to go. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah. Think,
1: I, I think, again, it's changing attitudes in, I hope it's changing attitudes in Britain as well about model makers. Well, I think
2: models have gone a, a little too far in the wrong direction. Um, uh, the model has become very. I mean, for the last fifteen years or so, architectural drawing values have not have been steadily dropping, mm. and the model values have gone astronomical, um, because it's 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 so much easier curators think to show the public, yeah, absolutely, the, the model and to make them understand the drawing. Um, so they become a little glamorous and the, I think the German architecture museum is the one that originally started this trend of let's, let's if there isn't a model let's build one um, and let's, let's show architecture to the public this way through, through miniaturization and I think it's a terrible way if you don't show the drawings as well. Quite absolutely. because the whole point is the translation of scale in your mind that's what uh, that's what they, that's how the architect's working and that's what you want people to learn to think unconsciously almost not to say I'm translating scale in my head but that that to me is right I think I, in some ways didactically not necessarily aesthetically the best exhibition I think I've ever been involved with was the law show at the Armand Hammer Museum. Mm. In Los Angeles, where with my colleagues Frank Eschen, Rabbi Gunnar and Marie Grigor, we orchestrated something that moved from drawings at this scale to models that you saw through mm. at quite big scale, not many of them, to original models that you couldn't get near that were fragments, so they're all, they're almost like in your head they became fragmentary, and then around the walls, um, because we didn't hang anything, mm. uh, around the walls, Murray's Murray's film sequences with the buildings the models were for, mm. in sort of chiaroscuro, which he hated, <laughs> he wanted it crisp, but I, did, I wanted it so much to be vague. Um, and they weren't in the sink. People spent an hour and a half in the gallery um, because they could make the moves. They could look at the drawing, see the model, see the building, make the connections between thinking at this scale to the working drawing at that one, to the, 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 the study model, to the, the model we'd made, to the to, to landscape in the distance, and then to this sort of
1: evanescent flow of what the experience of being there was like but it must be so exciting when visitors are beginning to do all of the things that you hoped they would and and more that was a thrill
2: that was a thrill the fact that we had to hire extra security because people were (laughs) staying they were staying too long you can't ask them to leave (laughs) Um, but you couldn't let other people in or you exceeded fire regulations so it was that was a real p- p- pleasure. Not and I, I now judge exhibitions by how long people stay, and not how many people come.
1: Mm. And and but you're still very. Are you still testing new ideas? I mean, I'm thinking about the um, the Civic Utopia show with at the told with um, Brazil. Are you still testing new ideas when you when you put together exhibitions and you know, um, object lists and things like that. Well, Civic Utopia was very
2: interesting. That was a test of how far I could push the portal away from its um, PC standards, and they were great about it. Mm. They were terrific. So, yes, I mean there were a couple of things that did there. Changed the hanging height that they normally require. Put it up a little bit. Um, We used the Latin titles um, for this sections because the English words were too, sort of too precise and didn't get the idea across right. We had um, smaller didactic text type mm. a much smaller font than they usually require. I said if you co- if you can't read this you can't see the detail in the drawing anyway, so why, what's the point, right? So we did all that, I think, very well, um, and they were very responsible, very good um, in in that regard. I think laying some drawings in the middle, you you (coughs) saw the show, laying some drawings in the middle, down the, down the middle that were not as, specific in a way that t- the talk to the landscape and so on and so forth so that could be read another way I think ma- we might have been too prescriptive in the show it might have been a little bit too organised for one small room so people couldn't make their own minds up what things were about but I was really happy with it mm-hmm. I thought it looked very beautiful and, and Stephen's space which I don't normally like um, not because I don't love him and his work but I think it's just think, it's over the top. Um, Quiet and down, I thought, yeah. very nicely. So, I was re- really happy with that exhibition, I'd say.
1: And as well as a very, very beautiful catalogue, I think I one didn't of like the catalogue. Did you know I love the catalogue. Everybody loves
2: the catalogue. It's <laughs> me. So I'm going to buy it. Anybody.
1: But I thought that one of the things as well. Um, no. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> Um, one, of the, one of the things about the exhibition was the, the, the drawing as a, um, as a way of exploring particular social values, or yeah. thinking about social values in a historic time, you know, moment, which I think perhaps relates back a lot to you, know, you talking about being a pure historian, and your but interest is very much in... That's all I do. Yeah. Um, and this is continuing, I remember conversations a couple of summers ago about Butterfield. and yes. As well as your sort of... Um, incredibly precise observations and study of the drawing, you're also hugely interested in the social values of mid-19th century England and, you know, church-going and, uh, you know, for instance... And England, I mean,
2: terms. and... and um, I mean, my... But the, the Butterfield interest... I, I like the Civic Utopia. It was... the exhibition came about as a celebration of Thomas More, because mm. it was in the year, the anniversary year, and the court all needed to... Do something. I said, let's take a moment when, at least on at least in terms of the built fabric, things were looking pretty ideal, um, to remind people that it can happen. um, That it's not always in there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I I think that was the moment, that period bridging the French Revolution, when this great urban vision emerged it was, uh, um, I'm looking now at William Butterfield um, partly because I'm increasingly and we haven't talked about it in this light before increasingly affected and moved um, by how many people how seriously trying to ameliorate the conditions of society in some way, some misguided in the mid 19th century. I mean it was really like a state of grace had fallen and and everybody was thinking about how do we make things better. Uh, It's really pretty remarkable and architecture clearly one of the vehicles for doing so. And in terms of Butterfield and Mr. Gladstone at least, Mr. Gladstone for a while, but Butterfield forever, the vehicle was the church in one form or another, or religion in one form or another. I just rereading yesterday his, his statement that when there is criticism of of Keble Chapel as having these giant, 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 giant chimneys and Starting to feel like a domestic space, and he said, "Well, every everybody should be at home in church, Mm. and every home should be a religious institution." Um, So the you can't his fierce view that you shouldn't distinguish so markedly between these two spheres of life. Mm. Um, So I'm really very, very much interested in. Butterfield's village schools, Mm. which are all over England and Scotland, Um, um, and his parsonages, which are these slightly religiously conceived domestic establishments, and his school, his big schools, Exeter School, Mm. and rugby and i've just been to in just a college where he did a lot more than people think mm. um and people where i want to live i want to move in so <laughs> have, you, have you been mm, wonderful it's just wonderful i mean the more time i spend there the more mm. i just don't want i don't want to go out of the gate, (laughs) ever.
1: (laughs) It it, it is incredibly castle-like, I think. I mean, it's that amazing environment, and obviously the ABK wall building on the side. Yeah, we're in this
2: great great
1: fortress,
2: I mean, it's not even a fortress, it's really, it's a a metropolis. You are in this little, it's like Urbina, you, Mm. (laughs) why (laughs) leave?
1: Good. So we always finish with one question, which you can give us short an answer or as long an answer as you'd like to. We always ask what um, a piece of advice you would give the, a young, fledgling architectural student about...
0: Anything. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Gosh. It's
0: a big one.
2: I think you'll hear it this, this evening if you stay for my presentation. Uh, I, I,
1: I, 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 I wouldn't presume to give it the advice. <laughs> it's
0: very modest of you. <laughs> no.
1: Thank you very much Nicholas
0: That's very great. Great. Yeah. Thank you Nicholas. Thank you for listening to this episode of register and thanks again to Laura and to Matt and of course to Nicholas for their time. Before signing off, uh, just a reminder to you to subscribe and leave your comments. it all helps. And to thank Matt Phillips, Matt Wells, Laura Evans, Christoph Luder for their help as part of Register. I do hope you're going to join us next time. Thank you.